I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. And I'm Matt Bernica. One of the most common questions that we get doing this podcast is, what's a good episode to send to someone who's a Christian but not a socialist? And that's a hard question for us to answer. Uh, We've done a lot of episodes, and it's kind of a weird conversation around here. Does your Christian but non-socialist friend or family member want four episodes about how weird Christmas is? Uh, Did they want to learn about Cuba? Have they wondered about what's going on in Venezuela or Bolivia? No, probably not. And that's why this time we're going to give you and all your Christian but non-socialist friends or family members an episode to start from. So if this is your first time listening... Hello. We hope that we spend your time uh, in a good way. We've done something like 200 episodes or so, so what better time than now to do an introduction about why Christianity and socialism just make sense together? What better time than now is right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, that being said, Christianity has given people a lot of very weird ideas about politics. Just so many strange ones. People, uh, you know, mostly associate Christianity with an extremely conservative brand of politics. And uh, that isn't great. Got a brand problem on our hands. But that has not always been the case. Christianity has oftentimes been a catalyst for all kinds of interesting and anti-capitalist political movements. In the 20th century, for example, Christianity sometimes inspired priests, nuns, and lay people to join socialist movements in the streets and in the jungles of uh, Latin America specifically against governments around the world. For example, the Nicaraguan Revolution was largely carried out by Christians, or Camila Torres, a Catholic priest from Colombia, joined a revolutionary army to fight for socialism. Uh, And even in the United States, Martin Luther King Jr. began to explore socialism as an idea toward the end of his life, uh, and his last speech uh, even was given at a sanitation worker strike in Memphis. So a person um, who is certainly uh, maybe not a socialist outright like some of the others that we've talked about, but definitely a person interested in socialism and interested in the movements of the working class. So the list can go on and on for sure. Uh, I mean, like we said, we have 200 episodes, so just listen to them all, I guess, and find um, find out about all the rest. But Uh, The point is that Christianity has oftentimes been a mobilizing force against oppressive powers like capitalism. And uh, yeah, you you might not suspect that, but here we are telling you the truth about it. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. One thing we talk about a lot on the show is that it helps to learn some of that history because it can give you a little bit of permission to recognize that you're probably not the first person to have had the thought that, hey, Christianity might have something to say about economic injustice or about socialism uh, in all its different forms. And uh, it's it's comforting to know that we're not just inventing this stuff uh, out of whole cloth. There's lots of people who've done a lot more work than we have. Um, you probably also don't need us to tell you that there are a lot of very weird ideas about socialism floating around as well. You know, just like Christianity, there are lots of different kinds of socialisms out there and plenty of people agreeing and disagreeing about it. It's a big conversation. If you get a bunch of socialists in a room, uh, they'll fight like Catholics and Protestants. So uh, you can learn some transferable skills to bring into that conversation. Uh, we're not going to get into the weeds of all of that, but we're going to try our best instead to distill this conversation about socialism down to some of its most basic parts. And if you decide to become a real big nerd or uh, to join the struggle yourself, um, you can figure out all the details in good time as the situation demands it. <laughs> all right, well, here's the plan. We're going to walk through some of the big, important resonances that Christianity and socialism share and then make the case that Christians ought to be socialists. All pretty simple. Um, so first, we're going to just try to lay out a little bit about God's concern for the poor and for economic justice. Then we'll talk through what socialism is and how it can help Christians realize God's concern here on earth. And then uh, we'll talk uh, a little bit about, uh, you know, explicitly about things like Marxism and theology. Um, and then you can definitely go back through the uh, the back catalog of, of the show to find, uh, you know, more more in the paint <laughs> content <laughs> about those things. Yeah, you, you want to know about what socialism and Christianity looks like in the DPRK? We got more than one episode for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, if you're if this is the first time that you're listening to this podcast ever and you're really skeptical about it, um, I don't know. We just try to do our best uh, to be truthful and honest, but also, um, uh, you know, we have a pretty clear bias that uh, we think Christians should be socialists. So that's what we got here for you. Um, at the end of the day, socialism uh, is a way for Christians to embody the love that God has called us to. And we think that people should think clearly about that. And our podcast is just trying to get people to do that. So give it a listen and uh, leave us a, a message in the, uh, the, the Apple iTunes review area and tell us how good we did at that. <laughs> Only the how good ones. You can keep the bad ones to yourself. That's right. Um, we don't want to hear them. <laughs> that's all right uh you can send us an email if you want to we'll tell you about all that stuff at the very end of the show and how to get in touch etc but why don't we dive right in here matt doing our very best to keep telling ourselves to avoid jargon and specialized terms as much as we can <laughs> let's do it yeah sure. <laughs> um let's start with uh god's what they call preferential option for the poor that is a term that comes from liberation theology in particular i'll say more about that in a second uh, but put most simply, the Bible is full of lots of places where God talks about the poor and chastises the rich. Uh, the prophets, for example, are constantly saying that Israel is going to be judged according to its treatment of the poor. That's a big thing that you get in Jeremiah and Isaiah and, and even the, the B-side the <laughs> prophets like Amos and Hosea. Uh, they're always going on and on about that as a big sticking point for God. Uh, God's laws often have specific provisions or things that they're concerned about that protect and take care of the poor, even if that means that rich people lose their wealth. 
So in the Bible, uh, in God's kind of um, blueprint for ancient society, um, there are all kinds of ways that people can accumulate wealth, but every seven years or so, the board gets reset and people have to start over, for example. So uh, not exactly the kind of American dream that you see on uh, TV today. Um, and across the Gospels, Jesus has a lot to say about the poor. It's pretty hard to read the Bible without recognizing that there is a really big emphasis on the worth and value of the poor themselves. And valuing the lives of the poor is a pretty normative belief within Christianity. If you ask someone, should Christians care about the poor, probably they'll say yes. But when it comes to the social dimensions of poverty and its causes, a lot of Christians stop short. So there's this kind of disconnect. The Bible, the book that we base our faith on, says all kinds of stuff about the poor, all kinds of stuff about uh, even warnings about not taking care of the poor or building a world that is just, right? Just according to how accountable we are to the people who are most marginalized in our society. Uh, and nevertheless, as Christians, we keep reproducing societies that are very unjust and do produce a lot of people who are poor. So uh, socialism is one way of trying to close that gap that we'll get to shortly. Yeah, I mean, before we make it all the way to socialism, though, this is an idea that, I don't know, if you're a person who's gone to church basically ever, you've probably kind of encountered, right? You go to a church, um, you, you know, you hear a nice sermon or whatever, and also they're collecting cans to give to a local food bank. Uh, a perfectly fine thing to do. Nothing wrong with it. Um, but I think oftentimes in churches, in Christianity, in um, at least in North America, in my direct experience, uh, we we uh, we see the we we take that normative value of caring for the poor, but we interpret it in a very bizarre way, right? We interpret it only along the lines of charity, which is something we'll talk about a lot later. But I, I think what Dean is saying here, I think what's really important to draw out is that we don't recognize the social dimensions of poverty, right? Like, where does it come from? Why are people poor in the first place? Why, uh, you know, are some people making uh, seven twenty five an hour, and why do some people make eight? thousand dollars an hour you know <laughs> um so I, I think that these are really good questions that uh christians should interrogate right i mean if if we are uh serious about our conviction and sort of the things that the bible tells us to do these are questions that should bug us um and you know no amount of soup cans that you collect or boxes of cereal are going to solve the problem of poverty or really even lessen it i think um at the end of the day so let's let's get back to the idea, though, of the preferential option for the poor. And we can talk about some of these other um, interesting Christian idiosyncrasies and trends in a minute. <laughs> so liberation theologians, especially in Latin America, have developed what they call the preferential option for the poor. It's a great phrase to start throwing around to impress your friends. You say it and people will be like, <laughs> that person knows about theology. That's right. <laughs> that's uh, that's why uh, you should learn about it. No, just kidding. You should learn about it because it's good. Um, so God, uh, these theologians say, cares about everyone, but God has a special concern for the poor specifically, and the church should too, recognizing that the church is also made up of a lot of poor people. But these theologians also said that the poor aren't poor because God made them that way, uh, which is uh, a bad thing to make sure you step over. You don't want, you don't want that one. Um, <laughs> they're poor because of an economic system that distributes goods unevenly, not because God made them that way. That would be... 
a really jacked up thing to believe. <laughs> so that means that Christians with a special concern for the poor should identify with the poor themselves and figure out what that system is and why it's making people poor in the first place and then struggle to change it. Um, you know, not in a paternalistic way, not in just a way that uh, centers charity, but in a way that like, uh, you know, actively participates in the liberation of people um, and the bettering of the lives of people who are uh, poor and oppressed for one reason or another. The Christian call to care and be with the poor is one of the main points of resonance between Christianity and socialism. Uh, you know, like Dean said at the beginning, socialism uh, is a is a word that people associate a lot of weird ideas with. Sometimes people mean things like uh, a, a scary socialist country. I don't know which one, but one of them, one of them out there that exists and is, is out there to oppress you and take away your freedom of speech. Or sometimes people are talking about when the government does things that they don't like, that's socialism. But I mean, at the end of the day, real socialists, if you if you read them, if you uh, if you pay attention to what they're saying, uh, care about the working class. They care about the dignity of people's labor. And at the end of the day, that's uh, a lot of what Christians mean by the preferential option for the poor as well. Caring for people um, in, in a deep way that, uh, you know, you, you want to struggle alongside them, not just uh, not just try to, I don't know, paternalistically um, solve their problems for them. Yeah, I think it's worth pausing at this moment to just talk that through a little bit more, right? Um, I said a minute ago that if you ask any average Christian if they should care about the poor or if Christianity cares about the poor, they would probably say yes. Um, most people want to say they care for the poor, right? And that that's a good impulse. You should want to care for the poor. Uh, but one way that we do that sometimes, or we express that, is by holding the poor at arm's length, right? There's the poor out there, and then there's us over here. And the poor out there, they need our help. They need our soup from the soup kitchens. They need uh, a shelter, perhaps. They need um, maybe even a, a social safety net or something like that to catch them. Um, or, you know, they just need our, our kind word or something like that, right? And in our society, they do need all those things, unfortunately. Um, but uh, what the preferential option for the poor encourages us to do is to not hold the poor at arm's length, but to identify ourselves with the struggle of the poor. Uh, the poor is a really broad category in liberation theology and in Christian socialism. It means people who are economically poor, for sure. Uh, it also means everybody else who's marginalized in some way or other. Uh, God has a preference for people who are finding themselves on the margins of a society. Um, socialists are, of course, very concerned about the economic question in particular, but they're also concerned about those other kinds of marginalizations, too. And what this kind of Christianity encourages us to do is sort of uh, say, if Christians really care about the poor like we say that we do, then we need to not only uh, embrace the struggles of the poor as our own struggles, uh, to make ourselves poor as much as we can, to identify ourselves with those struggles, um, but we also need to work to uh, change society in such a way that, you know, People don't just need our, our occasional kindness whenever we feel like it. Um, so it's important for Christians to be able to think critically about what we're saying about our own selves and our relationship to the poor. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, let me tell you an instructive story, <laughs> a life lesson that I learned. <laughs> <laughs> One time, uh, so I grew up in an evangelical church. I was in a very evangelical youth group. And uh, one time we did a mission trip to the inner city and I don't even really remember what inner city we went to. It was actually out of state, which is bizarre. 
but we went to this uh this homeless shelter to like volunteer and do this sort of like mission trip kind of thing if you don't know what a mission trip is count yourself lucky anyways in this we went to this homeless shelter we like um we we did sort of like a a pretty wimpy service project and then we went home and um i think that's such a good it's a it's a good illustration of the way that a lot of churches and a lot of christians i think you know misplace they have very good thoughts about um caring for the poor right i mean like we all wanted to go to like sort of make a difference in someone's life and to help people who needed help but i think that our intentions were good for the most part i mean i can't speak for everybody in the group it was a youth group so i'm sure some people's intentions were bad but mine i'm were sure good. your intentions specifically were great <laughs> yeah exactly mine were good <laughs> i can't speak for uh kyle's but uh mine are great anyways um <laughs> But our like actions were completely misplaced. It's fine to help out at a, at a homeless shelter. That's not an issue. But like traveling over state lines <laughs> to a different city that I don't live in uh, to like descend upon them and help them do a weird service project for like a weekend uh, is nothing, right? That's nothing at all. That's a misplaced action. That's not helping people who are poor. That's not helping people who are oppressed. That's definitely not helping anyone liberate themselves from a system of oppression. That's just like a thing that I've done that kind of makes me feel good. And that way of thinking needs to be defeated within Christianity. <laughs> it's such a bad <laughs> thing. And uh, I think that uh, and uh, you can you can see sort of like the bind though, right? Christianity has a nice idea about how to help people or it has a, a nice idea that helping people is good. And that's great. Let's foster that. But the uh, the problem, the bind is that it doesn't know how to help people. And in, in that sort of confused state, uh, it ends up doing things that probably, you know, either have a have a zero net uh, gain on the situation or a negative gain on the situation. Um, all that to say, uh, we have a very bizarre way of thinking about poverty. We have a very bizarre way about uh, thinking about, you know, what it means to be with the poor or among the poor or helping the oppressed. And uh, I think that uh, socialism is a way forward, a way out of that bind that kind of gives us some instruction about how you might actually help people. Yeah, I think that's right. And what you were saying too, Matt, is instructive too, because, you know, so I, I went to one of these evangelical churches for a while as well, though I grew up a Roman Catholic. And one thing that I always take away from that is I think most people who were invested in those projects, you know, at a certain level, their heart was in the right place. Like you said, Matt, their their intentions were probably good. Um, but the issues of being in a society like ours, which is arranged in such a way that produces people who are homeless, uh, those kinds of issues just don't enter our consciousness very much. And it makes it hard for Christians to really embody our radical call to care for the poor because we sort of content ourselves with, uh, you know, with Band-Aids for problems rather than really solving the the, the gaping wound of uh, economic injustice. Um, I think that one way of kind of addressing that uh, inability for Christians to come to terms with that, that big gaping wound is uh, that we don't often see ourselves as part of a big social uh, whole. We don't think of ourselves necessarily as part of the common good. Um, we probably have communities that we're invested in, our Christian communities, etc. cetera, uh, but we don't see that as uh, the, the primary way we should be thinking about when we vote, let's say, for a politician or when we think about uh, what's wrong in our societies. And I think that's what socialism is trying to get us to do, is to say, 
we shouldn't be thinking individually first to, first and foremost. We should be thinking socially, that there is a kind of a social relationship that we're all put into with one another uh, that we have to honor and affirm and figure out together. And we can do that in a number of ways politically, but that's what socialism is really aiming at, at getting us to reorient the way that we think about things like homelessness or poverty as problems that exist because our social lives have deteriorated in a certain way or there's an imbalance there. And we need to find our way back to putting a, a society together that doesn't have those kind of symptoms. Does that make sense to you, Matt? Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, listen, the word socialism People say it means all kinds of scary things, but at the end of the day, it's a word that centers on society, right? It's a political formation that puts society first and answers, I think, the question of like individual liberty and the development of people uh, sort of holistically through the development of the entire society together, right? Like that's what it's about. Um, so when people tell you other things about socialism, tell them they're wrong because you heard a podcast and I'm sure we'll respond <laughs> very positively to that. Um, but I think this is a not just a socialist idea, right? I think that uh, that Christians have also had this this kind of idea before, too. Um, most notably in the early church and the type of communal formations that early Christians, uh, you know, put together. Um, most notably written about in uh, the Acts of the Apostles or just acts, depending on what kind of church you go to and what way you talk about this specific book. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I think it's really worth thinking about that a little bit more critically. Here, let me let me read Acts 2.44, and you can uh, get a flavor for this early Christian community and, and maybe what ties it might have to socialist thinking. Uh, Acts 2.44 says, All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all that had any need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number and those who were being saved. So there you go, folks. The early Christians, um, they were eating together. They were drinking together. They were praying together. That's all great. But here's the one that's going to make your Republican uncle mad. <laughs> <laughs> they did. Uh, they they lived together. They had all things in common, and uh, they would sell their possessions and distribute the proceeds to people who needed them in their community. And listen, folks, uh, whatever way your pastor wants to spin this and tell you it's not socialism, I mean, I guess you're welcome to. But it is. <laughs> it is a certain type of socialism. Probably not the kind that I'd prefer exactly because of, uh, uh, you know, developments in political economy since then. But there's something to this, right? Um, Christians have uh, in in the core text in the in the core of their whole religion they have a claim that the early church was living in this really particular way that valued uh, the 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 communion the community the social over the individual and uh, you know a lot of people will go on to say things like well that was the early church and things have changed so much since then and like yeah I mean that's true um, but you do have to admit that it was an option for them and it's still an option for you. So um, that's another one of those resonances, right? Socialists and Christians, they care about the poor, they care about the oppressed, but also socialists and Christians care about the community and they uh, they find some type of, uh, yeah, really important meaning behind uh, the community of believers living together. Um, so you can't deny it uh, as much as you might want to. Yeah, that's right. I think one other thing to pull out here with that text in Acts is... You know, it might be easy to look at that story and say, 
well, that's an interesting thing that these people did, sharing all their stuff, but uh, it's totally impractical, it doesn't make any sense, and at the end of the day, this is uh, sort of incidental. You don't really need to think that hard about that. Uh, however, I think that there's actually an even more compelling presentation of this early Christian community just a few chapters later in Acts chapter 4, 32 uh, to 35, where it says this, Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership over any possession, but they, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now this is repeating a little bit what we already heard in Acts chapter 2, which I think is important, right? It's The, the author of Acts thought it was important to repeat that once again. Uh, but the thing that I always find really interesting is that all this kind of radical social practice is also rooted in this profound belief that Jesus resurrected from the dead, right? Uh, this isn't just like a liberal thing that, uh, oh, Christianity has secretly just been about socialism all along, and you can kind of get rid of all the other Christian stuff and forget about it. Uh, there's this sense in the Bible that it was because these people really believed the message that Jesus gave to them that they felt compelled to live in this alternative way. And I think that's something that we have to sit with, you know, like, um, I don't live in a commune, right? Right now, <laughs> I, I have not sold everything I own and live with uh, all my neighbors in that way. But it's important to see this as a, uh, a reflection of Christian belief, not just a sort of weird add on that people decided to do sort of accidentally. Yeah, totally. I mean, we can talk more about that in a minute. I mean, the, uh, the sort of communal lifestyle of the early church, I think doesn't map exactly on to the ideal world that socialists imagine um, or would want to live in or have already built. But uh, there is a certain, uh, I mean, there's a resonance between these things. The, that's the the phrase we keep kind of going back to, right? There's a similarity that they, they, they kind of do map onto one another. Um, they share some common themes. And I think that's uh, at least a pretty good place to start. I think that, you know, what's really interesting to me, at least about these passages in Acts is we were just talking about this idea of God's preferential option for the poor. And we were talking too about not keeping the poor at arm's length. And I think that's what these passages are showing, right? That there's a way of understanding Christian community that involves everybody all at once and that flattens these kind of economic inequalities. Uh, it is a preferential option for whoever had need among them. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not a preferential option for people's property rights or the things they think they deserved or earned or any of that kind of stuff. It's a preference for who among us has need and who among us has too much and how can we sort of balance that equation in an important way. And I think that it's important to draw this together, right? The Bible has a, a real voice for the poor, uh, a critique of the rich, and the way the early Christians responded to that and to the message of Jesus was to form a community uh, that embodies exactly that, uh, that doesn't have a needy person among them and is willing to sort of throw everybody all together in order to achieve that. Dang, when you put it that way, Dean, it sounds like this other phrase I've heard before, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Somebody really smart said that, but I can't remember who. <laughs> uh, it's all in the Bible first, uh, but yes, it is a popular phrase uh, also taken up by Karl Marx. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, the imagined listener that we had in mind when we were making this episode is someone who is a Christian, uh, but not a socialist, not convinced yet. 
And fine. So we've talked a lot about Christianity so far, and hopefully the picture we've painted of that religion is one that you recognize and that uh, makes sense to you. Hopefully you're following us. I guess that's all we're trying to say. Um, but now we should probably talk a little bit about like what socialism actually is and like what socialism helps Christianity say that Christianity can't say itself. I think that's kind of the important piece. Um, I mean, the whole idea here is that Christianity is good, but I think that it, it needs socialism to, I think, carry out its goals really exactly. So if you're with us so far, <laughs> then it's clear that Christianity has a important social dimension to it. Um, and I think that it, that in and of itself is a pretty hot claim, given the tendency for conservative Christians and sort of like Christian thought leaders to... Um, be cantankerous about social justice warriors and letting social justice lead the church. So lots of angry people about that. But uh, I mean, let them be angry, I guess, because I don't I, I can't look at Christianity as a religion. I can't look at the Bible. I can't look at the Gospels without seeing a serious social dimension to it. And I mean, I think if you're honest with yourself, you probably can't either. So to be a Christian means not only that there are like normative beliefs about theology, but, you know, some normative beliefs about what good politics looks like. Just, I mean, at the very basis level, um, caring for the poor and like how you do that, living in a community, those are political questions that we're talking about. And it might not seem like it, but they are. Um, so we also have to recognize, though, that Christianity, while having very good intentions at this like social level, right? Like we just said, Christians want to care about the poor. That's a good thing. Uh, Christianity itself is a religion, not a social science, not a political theory. It's a religion. So um, to carry out the political mission of Christianity in the way that we and others have already located it within socialism um, and like the preferential option for the poor, you need some kind of overarching tool for political analysis and some kind of general theory of political action as well that uh, you know that can help you make sense of this all, right? Because otherwise, you end up falling short. You end up uh, bringing soup cans and trying to solve poverty through charity when that's just not going to work, statistically speaking. So that's where socialism all kind of comes into play. Socialism is a really good answer to the ethical dimension of Christianity. Uh, just by and large, it's uh, a way of looking at the world that helps you um, locate not just like who the poor are, but also why they're poor. Like what are the large systems keeping them in those uh, systems of oppression and in intergenerational poverty and so on. Uh, it's a word that gets tossed around a lot without people really knowing what it means. So here's some of the broad strokes to what socialism is and what it does. So we can start with the very simplest ways of describing it. Um, we've done this a little bit already, but we'll do it some more because why not? Socialism means an equitable distribution of resources and of political power. So in practice, that means that the poor and the oppressed, the people who God has a preferential option for, are uh, empowered to more actively participate in the world. And I think that's a really important way of framing it. Um, socialism is inherently a democratic project. It's not about government handouts. It's about people... Um, taking kind of control of their situation and uh, and seizing the tools that they need to create a world that actually works for them and for everybody else, too. Yeah, I think framing it in those democratic terms is helpful, too. Uh, we'll get to how it relates to the preferential option for the poor in a moment, um, but it's important to kind of make that democratic claim up front as well. 
uh, socialism's not charity, um, as we've been kind of saying in, in a non too subtle way so far. Uh, the world that we live in is one where uh, most people don't have democratic control over their lives, right? Socialism is a world where people do have that democratic control, especially in their workplaces, which is where most of us spend most of our time. Um, you might think that that's the world that we live in now. But most of us don't really have a say in how our workplaces or other parts of our lives are structured in a really meaningful way. So just to zero in on the work piece of this, at the end of the day, your boss is the one who decides how you work, how long you're going to work, what's an acceptable level of safety for your work, how much you'll get paid for that work, and so on, right? These decisions are things that uh, you that affect you in really big ways, but they're decisions that you don't have a lot of say in, probably. So whatever you do, whether you're in a factory making parts on the floor, or if you work on the floor of a retail store, your work makes money that comes into the business and that business employs you. What happens to that money also isn't up to you, right? Uh, it's up to whoever owns the business, and that's not democracy either. So in our workplaces, even though we might think that we live in a certain big political democracy, most of us actually have very little control over what happens on the day-to-day -day of where we actually spend our time. Even if we enjoy our jobs, if we're not the people who own those companies, the work that we do uh, produces all kinds of profit for the people who do own those companies, and we don't really get to decide how much of it we actually deserve, or how much of it the person who owns that company actually deserves, which, if it were up to us, we probably wouldn't be paying out CEOs what they think they deserve. <laughs> and we'd probably pay ourselves a little bit more. That's my guess. Yeah, I think that you're right. I mean, that's a really good way of framing it, though, right? I think that there's a certain tendency within, I mean, at least North American culture. I, I, don't, I can't speak for the rest of the world. But um, there's a certain tendency that, that looks at work as a sort of volunteerism. That, uh, you know, it's, a, it's just a contractual agreement that is um, made by two parties with equal power. That uh, there's a job, but you want it because that's the job that you yourself have chosen um, and the employer gives it to you, right? But really, that's not how things work out at all. Um, nobody, I mean, there are people who uh, work all kinds of extremely low-wage jobs uh, that lack dignity, that lack um, basic protections, that, you know, don't really want to volunteer for those jobs. But, you know, they're forced into it more or less because there's basically no other way they can make ends meet. And that's not a democratic situation. <laughs> that's a bad situation. That's a, a situation where you're forced into doing something you really don't want to do, right? There's a whole lot of coercion involved. But um, in a more socialistic situation, um, you'd have more power in the workplace. You could tell your boss to do all kinds of things. They'd have to listen um, if, if uh, things were organized in a little bit of a different way. And I think it's important, too, to recognize that this is just the situation, the undemocratic situation for people who are employed, right? <laughs> Which is uh, um, a lot of people, most people uh, are in this situation. That's to say nothing of people who are not employed or who are poor uh, in a, a more sort of brutal way and especially don't have any democratic say over whether or not they get hired or uh, what happens to them when they're on the streets or something else. So if the situation is already um, ethically ambiguous, uh, let's say, for people who are at work living undemocratic lives, even if they enjoy them uh, or not, uh, the situation is even worse for the most marginalized. And again, that's the, the kind of um, place that God wants our, our minds and hearts to be all the time, I think. Um, 
the question I think for us is, as Matt said earlier, what does socialism help us say that Christianity doesn't or that it has a hard time saying? And I think, you know, Christianity tells us that we should care about the poor, but socialism tells us about the origins of poverty. So it's a perspective that helps us build a society where the poor and the oppressed have the means to liberate themselves. And it's also a perspective that allows us to say, hey, we should all have a little more democratic control over our lives. Um, These are questions that Christianity is maybe interested in in a tangential way, but it's not the kind of thing you're going to be reading about in the Bible. Um, Socialism shows us that society, uh, as we currently experience it, is making people poor and making people lead these kind of uh, undemocratic lives, and it does injustice to all of us. So one good place to start thinking about this, uh, the way that socialism relates to Christianity, is a 1905 essay by the Polish Marxist Rosa Luxemburg called Socialism and the Churches. Um, She said that Christianity definitely has a long history of caring for the poor and criticizing the rich, and as a good socialist herself, she likes that part. Uh, The first Christians, like we mentioned earlier, practiced this form of of socialism. Uh, She calls it a a communism of consumption, where everybody shares their goods. So everybody's bringing their stuff, and they can all consume in an equal way. Nobody's uh, able to consume a ton while somebody else starves. That's what the, the problem Christianity is solving in the ancient world. But she asks, how do people get those goods that they consume in the first place so that they can be shared? And that's a question about production. That's the question that socialism likes to ask. To kind of put it in a super simple way, even if we all did get together and lived the way that the early Christians do, at some point we would all run out of things to share. We would run out of stuff to consume. And we would have to ask the question again about how to organize our production. So uh, it's a question that Christianity would have to ask no matter what at some stage, even if we all miraculously sort of transformed the whole planet into Acts 2 and 4. Um, In a capitalist society, neither the production that we do or the consumption that we do happens for the common good or for the poor, but for the rich. Uh, So maybe I'll just take a minute to pause there. Matt, does that sound like a a fair sort of intro, at least, to how socialism is helping us uh, problematize and and draw out some of the ways Christians think? Yeah, I think so. I I think that, um, you know, saying that production is a question that Christians have to deal with uh, if they want to live communally is a really good note because you might think, well, Christians aren't dealing with that right now. And I mean, that's kind of true, but they are dealing with it in the sense that they just let the status quo be the status quo, right? That uh, in, in not asking too many hard questions about uh, production or like, you know, democracy in the workplace or how much people get paid. Uh, Christians are sorting it out for themselves, right? That uh, this whole system that uh, that necessitates some unemployment, that necessitates some homeless, that necessitates uh, people go without health care, uh, go without food, go without shelter uh, in a lot of cases, that that's all okay. And um, I think that uh, if Christians were more upfront about the uh, political economy, if they had some kind of means by which to understand it, you know, beyond things like uh Dave Ramsey or whatever, uh, they'd be a lot better (laughs) off. Uh, That question of production is a a big one, right? If you care about your community, you should care about the places people work. I think that's a really good way of uh, getting us a little bit deeper into it. And I think it's also an important note to say we should talk a little bit more about production 
so we can kind of draw this out a little more specifically. So when we talk about the question of production, again, we're talking about that question of, of work. Um, who's working? What do they do? What do they make? And how does all the sort of profit or value that they create uh, get moved around? So here's an extremely simple way maybe to put it. Uh, we could say that in the world that we live in now, rich people employ other people who do work that make the rich more money, right? When you go to your job and you do your job, you're bringing in money to that company or person or whatever it might be. And again, all that money that you bring in gets funneled up somewhere where people make decisions about that money, uh, but the, you're not probably part of those decisions. So some of that money goes back to you or to other workers in the form of wages, most of it, though, goes into the bank accounts of rich people. And capitalism, the society we live in, is a weird one because it's one where uh, that wealth is getting bigger and bigger all the time. Uh, it's just sort of coming into being all the time, being generated by people all the time. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily find its way back to us, uh, despite what people say about things like trickle-down economics, etc. Uh, that just isn't the way that it operates. And the rich are under no obligation to make sure that it does, right? It's up to them to decide whether or not they want to create an equal world. And so far, they have decided that they don't. Uh, altogether, individually, they've decided that's not really on the agenda for them. Um, what that means is that working people are the ones who make all the profit and goods and services, but they don't get to make any meaningful choices about what to do with those profits, goods, or services. Uh, in the economy that we live in now, the main goal of the people who are getting the profits is to keep getting more profits and to stay in competition with other people making profits. The main goal of working people, on the other hand, is to keep getting a small slice of that pie of profits in the form of wages to survive, and if you don't get those wages, you'll end up poor. So working people are threatened by poverty, and the people in poverty are left to the mercy or the lack of mercy of a competitive and individualistic society that we live in. So this is uh, maybe a complicated way of putting it, but uh, it's important to recognize that for Christians who have that preferential option for the poor, we have to recognize that sort of built into the economy that we live in is this strange way in which people are threatened with poverty, uh, all while other rich people continue to make more and more money. Yeah, you know, this is actually another another big point of resonance between Christianity and socialism as well, right? The Gospels are full of these um, very interesting parables about uh, the rich just storing up their their treasures on earth, right? Something that uh, Jesus tells you time and time again to be pretty suspicious of. Um, you know, you, you store up your treasures on earth, uh, you're not going to get them in heaven is what Jesus tells you. Listen, <laughs> he said it, not me. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it's actually, I mean, you know, as a kid in church, I think those types of things, uh, never really clicked in my brain. Cause I would, I was always think like, wait, if I was rich though, I wouldn't just store those things up. I would buy an Xbox, <laughs> 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 but, uh, it's wild because, uh, I mean, rich people don't even do that. Uh, their bank accounts are lush with money and they're not spending it and not reinvesting it into anything. It just kind of sits there and they acquire more money off of the money they have. And it's a really jacked up system if you think about it right so these people are gaining all types of wealth without even doing anything um and that's just the worst i gotta tell you uh <laughs> take it from jesus or take it from me that sucks and i don't like it all right the scenario that dean just laid out about production right it's pretty clearly an unjust one uh it's a situation that uh is bad a lot of people who don't do very much work get a lot of money and make money doing nothing <laughs> 
uh, or, you know, they maybe they have a job and that's great for them. But still, they uh, they make a whole lot of money every year off just the management of their money in a bank account gaining, you know, um, interest or whatever. Um, and all the working people that are struggling to make ends meet that have to, you know, um, string together uh, two full time jobs making seven twenty five an hour and uh, public assistance or whatever, you know, they can barely pay their rent. And that situation is not just a sort of like vaguely unjust one, but it's also one that is, I mean, more or less evil, <laughs> right? It, in uh, for socialists, we would say that's unjust. Sure, it uh, there's all kinds of um, all kinds of words that you could describe that in sort of like the secular socialist vocabulary. But Christians, in this case, uh, can also add something to the conversation, right? Uh, socialism gives us a lot of tools, but so does Christianity. Uh, Christianity gives us a real moral way to think about that type of um, that type of setup, the setup of you know the basic setup of capitalism. Um, that uh, that this situation isn't just like bad; it's not just like a, an unfortunate set of circumstances, but primarily that this situation is what Christians would call sin. Um, you know, sin is when you do something against God or your fellow person. You know, you wrong them in some way. <laughs> And uh, I think that that's exactly what we're seeing here. But it's just a little bit harder for us to see because of our very narrow and individual sort of scope. Um, but when you look at this situation at the very the very big level, the macro level, right, that there are systems in place that normalize what is otherwise abhorrent, right? If you saw somebody on the street that was just freezing, um, you would probably try to help them. If you were, If you saw someone who was actively starving, you'd probably try to help them. If you saw somebody who was like, you know, uh, like actively dying of an illness, you would probably want to help them. Right. Uh, of course. Of course you would. <laughs> I mean, probably. I don't know. And um, if you if you wouldn't, then um, pause. this. Our podcast. listeners would. They're they're all good people. That's right. <laughs> but if you wouldn't pause this podcast and take a good hard look at yourself and think, <laughs> what's wrong with me? Um, but anyways, <laughs> right. In, in all these individual situations, you would totally help those people. You would want to. It'd be the morally upright thing to do. But at the macro level, for some reason, we can we find ways to abstract ourselves. We find ways that uh, people without homes, children without food, sick people without health care are just business as usual. Right. So um, capitalism helps hide things that are sinful uh, just because they're big. Right. The scale of them. They seem so insurmountable. They seem um, vague. The, the um, you know, it's hard to kind of name exactly who's at fault for these things, and et cetera, right? That is a huge problem. But Christianity gives us a language to talk about that in terms of sin. I think that's really important. Um, Christianity also adds into the conversation, um, you know, the opposite of sin, what would be reconciliation or forgiveness. And we can also think through that in terms of like a macro level, Um as well, right? Um, if sin is a macro level phenomena, then I guess reconciliation could be as well. So, you know, things like poverty and, um, uh, you know, the lack of healthcare and uh, homelessness and uh, all kinds of other things that I've already named, they're all big problems, right? And they're caused by a big network of actors that is abstract. Yes, this, this is true. Um, but the people that are behind them have names and addresses you can hold them responsible um and you know what i'm saying here is not like go out and get them or something but what i'm saying is that uh, socialism and christianity together can help us pull together a type of vocabulary that is capable of addressing just why these systems of oppression are actually unacceptable and not just sort of like vague happenstances that are 
unfortunate for some people and great for other people, right? So um, among other things, like the liberation from sin, that's what Christianity is all about at the end of the day, might at least look like undoing these systems that limit and destroy the lives of the most vulnerable. That's something that morally helps people doing the oppressing too, right? I mean, if you're able to, uh, uh, listen, um, maybe your boss is nice, but not every boss in the world is nice. Um, some some bosses employ people um, and pay them under the table so they don't have to pay taxes the, so they can steal wages. And uh, whether you want to believe it or not, that's a sin. <laughs> you shouldn't do that. <laughs> it's bad and it's evil. Um, and not only is that person hurting their workers, but also they're hurting themselves. Um, they're alienating themselves from the people they work with. They're putting themselves at odds with uh, with other people and with God. And like that sucks. If you uh, if you help people um, liberate those conditions, the conditions of their oppression, it will inevitably help the people who are doing the oppressing as well. Of course, to them, it probably won't look that way. It'll look like you're taking their their money from them or you're you're uh, putting you know you're doing something mean to them but um uh actually it helps yeah i think too uh again that that's such a good point to draw out that this system forces uh all people into sinful relationships um it forces uh, especially rich people to oppress and exploit others you mentioned that your boss might be nice um but other people's bosses are mean one wild thing though about nice bosses is they're also caught up in this uh, story that we were just telling about how the money that comes into a business gets floated upwards to a place where uh, bosses and owners get to decide what to do with that money uh, you as a worker don't get to decide that, and that is not fair, right? There's something profoundly unjust about that situation. Uh, God didn't put those people in a position because they earned it or, you know, are getting a reward by having that kind of power over you. Uh, they are in that position because of the way that our economy is set up. So they can be the nicest boss in the world, but still they're in this kind of exploitative relationship with you uh, in a very Im imbalanced way. Um, to put a sort of fine point on it, here's a passage from James 5 also that kind of adds that Christian moral language to this uh, socialist point. Um, so we can always kind of drive the point home with a biblical <laughs> text. Uh, James 5 says, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be evidence against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. It's a lot of Xboxes. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you held, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. And I think it's important to recognize this kind of verse because the Bible itself is saying something about the, the fate of the rich, right? That uh, they're in trouble just by virtue of the position that they're in. And uh, God has a preferential option for the poor, um, but if we also care about the hearts of the rich, we need to find a way to help them not be in exploitative relationships with other people just by virtue of the society that we're all born into. It's true. Um, your boss is going to hate that news, but uh, 
but listen, she just told you to spread the good news. And that's what you got to do. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, one key thing for me, too, is that socialism isn't just about being crabby at rich people or being the smartest person in the room. You can kind of get that impression if you spend enough time around socialists and sorry, it's a bad habit. We all get it one way or the other, unfortunately, but that's not what it's about. Uh, It's really about wanting a world where injustices aren't necessary anymore. Right now in capitalism, they are necessary. It's necessary to have injustices, to have the threat of poverty, to have unemployment, etc. We have to have these things in order to allow certain profits to get generated. Uh, and what Christian could be against that, right? Against a situation where there aren't injustices that are necessary for the world. Um, I want to read just one passage, too, that I think helps to make this clear. So we've been talking a little bit about socialism as opposing a situation of injustice, but it's also important to say that socialism holds out the possibility, uh, a positive vision for something else. And uh, it's not just socialists who are secular people who say that, it's also Christians. So one example is after a socialist revolution succeeded in Nicaragua in 1979, the Catholic bishops of that country wrote a letter to the people clarifying their own views about socialism, which I think helps makes all this, uh, this connection a little bit clearer. So they said this, If socialism means, as it should, that the interests of the majority of Nicaraguans are paramount, and if it includes a model of an economic system planned with national interests in mind, in solidarity with and providing for increased participation by the people, we have no objections. Any social program that guarantees that the country's wealth and resources will be used for the common good and that improves the quality of human life by satisfying the basic needs of all the people seems to us to be a just program. If socialism means the injustice and traditional inequalities between the cities and the country, between remuneration for intellectual and manual labor, will be progressively reduced, and if it means the participation of workers in the fruit of their labors overcoming economic alienation, then there is nothing in Christianity that that is at odds with this process. If socialism implies that power is to be exercised by the majority and increasingly shared by the organized community so that power is actually transferred to the popular classes, then it should meet nothing in our faith but encouragement and support. I think that's the key, that being a Christian and being invested in socialism is not about revenge. It's not about uh, telling off the rich or being really upset that you are in an undemocratic situation. It's about really actually wanting a world where these injustices are not necessary to keep the world turning, that there are other things that are necessary, like building good values of solidarity or organization or care. Uh, that's the kind of world that we need to live in. Yeah, man. Well put. That's good. Uh, good job, Dean. Good job, Nicaraguan <laughs> priest. You've done it. You've really, you've really said something that I think is right. All right. So we've laid out a big case here, um, and hopefully you're convinced. Um, and if you're not, well, I don't know. I'm not to tell we you. We have 200 um, other episodes. Send us an email. Tell us why. Yeah, that's right. Listen to those and then send us an email. Um, you know, in the intro, we mentioned that uh, there, there's a handful of socialists uh, and people's movements that Christianity played a really big mobilizing role in. And now that we're at the end, end of the show, you can at least start to make sense of some of that, right? If uh, if the whole idea of socialism and Christianity being compatible was nonsensical at the beginning for you, now at least it should kind of make sense, right? Socialism and Christianity have a lot of very similar commitments and goals in the world 
And uh, I think that they can achieve their goals working together, Christians and socialists, hand in hand, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, you know, looking at the world as, as a Christian could mean, you know, picking up the tools of Marxist analysis and socialist organizing principles to authentically do the work of the church and to live out a faithful Christian life. That is a possibility that we want to put on the table. <laughs> I think that, uh, and that's it, right? Maybe you're not convinced, but you should at least see that is possible. So sticking with the theme of the show, uh, you you might not find yourself grasped by the importance of identifying as a socialist or something, and I guess that's fine. But uh, at least we've made the, the case clear that this is something that makes sense. There's there's no contradiction in terms between Christianity and socialism. Um, you know, not to say there's no um, inner conflict that you might find, not to say there's no tensions, but uh, there's no conflict. These two things can exist side by side and people and they have and they do and they will. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's important to note at the the end here, uh, there's obviously lots more to this conversation, right? Uh, what are you supposed to do with the legacy of something like Marxism? Uh, how does Christianity and atheism uh, sort of get together or not get together in a socialist uh, movement or a socialist division? Uh, how are we supposed to deal with the history of socialism or the history of Christianity for that matter? These are all questions that are important, right? They're, they're not meaningless and it's important to sort them out. Um, but we would be absolutely wrong to assume that people haven't done that hard work. Uh, there are lots of people who've heard every single question that you've thrown at them at one point or another, and uh, lots of history of people writing, thinking, and acting in ways that show that these things don't have to be contradictory in an ultimate sense, in an important sense, right? Uh, even all the way up to the Catholic bishops of a whole country at a certain point recognizing that maybe there is a, a pathway for socialists and Christians to get together. And it, it's probably difficult to find that path. Uh, it takes a lot of work on a lot of people's parts. But at the end of the day, both Christianity and socialism are trying to build a world for the poor, for the democratic control of people uh, over their own lives, right? For the ability to have some kind of um, confidence that we can determine our own futures and we don't have to sort of wait around for breadcrumbs from the rich or breadcrumbs from Congress or or the the executive office or whatever it might be, um, that instead we should uh, take matters into our own hands and, and build a world where uh, we don't need these injustices anymore. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Uh, if you can't support us financially, that's fine too. Just leave us an iTunes review or an Apple podcast review. They changed the name of it. And uh, either way, you can give us a review. We'd appreciate it. Uh, cool. Our intro music is by Amaria Armstrong and our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord.